You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to a new episode of the Rua Space Podcast. I am Phil Vestal, and I'm glad you've joined us today as we look to make space for the spirit. Today is another interview episode, and this was a really awesome interview because I got to spend a little bit of time with Taya Forst. She is a professor at the College of DuPage as well as an attorney, and we had a really fascinating conversation about restorative practices. Now, you may have no idea what restorative practices are, and that's okay because that's what we're going to talk about and dive into. And I think this is a really helpful conversation because while it's not specifically about spiritual disciplines per se, restorative practices are about how as communities we can hear one another well, how we can work through times of difficulty, times of harm, how we can better understand one another. And restorative practices are being used across the board in the justice system, in schools, in workplaces. And I think it's just a really cool topic. And so I was excited that Taya agreed to come on and talk about it. I think it's a really fun conversation. And I know I personally learned a lot and really started thinking more about the importance of listening, hearing voices, and sharing honestly with one another. So again, really glad that you're with us today. I hope you enjoy this really cool conversation with Taya Forst. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for ever since we started thinking about it, and here's the day, so I'm excited. I'm excited as well. Thank you for inviting me. So can we just start? Can you tell people a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do? I'm Taya Forrest. I actually am an attorney by trade. I'm an educator by choice. Um, I love what I do, and I believe that those two areas, law and education, are actually complementary when they're done correctly. So hence, that brings me to our topic, restorative practices. That's why I love it so, because I feel like it works really well with my two passions. Um, And so a little bit about my background, I guess, um, before I became an educator, I practiced for about 15 years. I worked with small and medium-sized businesses. I did uh, that penalty mitigation work and um, eventually landed on real estate. So my background is is very varied and a little weird for some (laughs) people, Um, but it helps in the long run, so. We all have a story, right? (laughs) Exactly. We we get to where we're going in different ways. So I originally had thought about talking to you about prayer, and then we started talking about restorative practices and restorative justice, and um, I thought we've got to talk about that. And then you gave me a bunch of books and even an article that you wrote and uh, even a newsletter about people using restorative practices, and I started to kind of understand the undercurrent of it and thought this is something that if you've never heard of it before, and we'll probably talk about it in the classroom and even in terms of the justice system, but I feel like it's applicable to individuals. Yes. And so can you kind of describe restorative practices and how you came to have it be so central to your own work? I mean, I think I have to be very honest in the moment. I was looking to do some promotion at work. Um, as an educator, you're always looking up various ways to encourage students, to bring about new methods, innovative ways to get across material. 
So I was doing a little bit of research and I decided I would like to take this course. Um, but before I even got at this point in the journey, I actually was very much interested in something called alternative dispute resolution as a lawyer. And that's mediation and um, all kind of conciliation. It really is, it shares a lot of the same concepts. So being restorative in a way that courts cannot do. Um, and so I think when we talk about relationships, that that's really what we look for. We want restoration in a way where someone is not losing, right? This concept of win-win. So as I began to study the subject, I then start applying it to my life. It's really difficult not to, if you really get involved in the process. And you start to recognize really how unrestorative you are. So you kind of have your thoughts about things, at least that's most personalities of attorneys, it's my way or the highway. <laughs> that no. Kind of oh, not me, <laughs> yeah. but I mean others I've heard. Other people, sure. Exactly. But um, then you start to understand there's so many additional pieces that go into the restoration process that if you address all the stakeholders, there really can be a true win-win. Hmm. Now, it's a process. And none of us like processes. We like ready-made answers. So I think that's where it becomes a little bit difficult. Mm. So it's in the process. The work is in the process. The pudding, the you know, answer is in the process, in the pudding, whatever. Um, but as you continue on, you start to apply more of the language and the verbiage in your life. And you start to see the responses to those in your life. Yeah. And I think that's when it becomes really central. So so what would be like a one sentence definition for you of restorative practice? Restorative practice is um, this concept where everyone is able to have an invested approach to any situation. So when I think about having restoration and restorative practices, I need to hear everyone's voice, mm. no matter how small or how large. So that means taking into account children's thoughts and not necessarily doing it in a way that supersedes someone else, but that they feel invested in the actual solution. When people are invested in the solution, then they actually like it yeah. and they're more apt to actually buy into it. So that's what I would say. I would say it's a community of stakeholders, given whatever the issue or challenge is, and then recognizing that each stakeholder has a realistic voice in the actual solution. And that's where the, the practical side comes because this is, we're talking about different disputes, right? It could be an issue in a classroom. It could be, I read a story about a basketball team that was using restorative practices. I mean, it can even be in a business. It could be in, um, they're using it now even in terms of justice when there's been a victim and an oppressor and some sort of um, reconciliation possible. And when I was reading about it, I was really fascinated by the circles, that circles are so central to it. And it's the idea, of course, you know, you are literally physically, there's a physical posture, physical practice of in a circle. Tell us what one might look like. What are kind of the elements of this? Because ultimately, I think these are things applicable no matter who you are that you're listening to this, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a teacher or in a business or 
at a gas station. I mean, it doesn't matter where you're working or what you're doing. We all run into issues with other human beings because, as you stated before, we're not perfect. And so what does a circle look like? So the restorative circle actually started with the Native people. I want to make sure that we give deference to Native people. I'm, I'm very passionate about that. And this was their concept in the way that they dealt with things. And actually, our version um, became a little bit more formalized, um, but they they deal with every issue in this way. And so you get into a circle and you're looking eye to eye, you are locked shoulder to shoulder. And so there's this concept of at one point, we were unequal, someone had more authority, and now we're just the same. We're here and we all are human. We all have voices. Even if it's a situation where there's a wrongdoer, someone who is harming and someone who's quote unquote a victim or who has been harmed. Even in those situations, you tend to recognize that the other person has a story, whoever mm. that person is. And so I believe that a circle, what it does is it kind of removes a lot of our facade as humans. Um, It allows us to be able to see what we couldn't otherwise see if we were sitting behind one another. For example, in a courtroom, persons are behind one another. They're not together at the same time. Even when they're facing the judge, they're side by side, never looking at each other, never speaking to one another. Mm. Um, But the circle removes all of those insensitivities, I think, and um, just differences. So it's supposed to equalize and normalize everyone's thoughts. And the beauty of a circle is that it starts out very simple. Um, I do these in my classroom. I do what's called check-in circles and check-out circles. So we use them for all kinds of things. Um, But when I first start with students, I ask like regular things that I'm sure they're okay with sharing, like your name. Um, But I have had students share with me that they were victims of sex slave trade. Mm -hmm. I've had students share with me that they want to be the next commander in chief. And I've never realized that level of comfort and relaxation until I started implementing circles. Mm. And might I add, students also come up with their own questions. They're thinking, oh my gosh, on Monday, I wanna ask this question. So it's that investment piece again, because what a facilitator of a circle never wants to do is always talk like what's going on now. No, that's (laughs) good. We wanna hear from you. (laughs) Yeah, so you know, the facilitator is taught to encourage others Mm to find and share their voice. Sure. And so being in a circle makes you physically able to say, wow, this person is just like me or not. Yeah. Either way, it's okay. Um, But you are encouraged to share what your perception or perspective may be, especially if it's different. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I could see in a classroom setting or other settings kind of those power dynamics where people may not be willing to share those things. And then all of a sudden you come around and you feel that sense of 
being the same. I remember doing homeless ministry and what we would often do and what we would kind of teach people to do is when you are approaching someone living on the street, you're in a sense entering their home. And so it's very important to come down to whatever level physically that someone's at. So if they're sitting, not to be standing up over them talking, but to sit next to. And it's amazing then how the dynamic switches when you're able to just come beside someone and truly be open. And in a circle, I think you're invited to truly share what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're experiencing, right? And then the others are invited to sort of listen to that and then share their story. And I think the other part of circles, like I can't emphasize this part enough, is the verbiage. Mm -hmm. So the words in which you're using, you tend to think about them very carefully. That's another thing lawyers do, they wordsmith. So you take a little bit more of a moment and you say, how will this person be impacted if I use the word victim as opposed mm. to being harmed. Right. So you're very specific with your language. Another thing that Circles encourages you to do is to ask questions, not make assumptions. So um, I believe that I was harmed when you chose to vandalize my property, but how did it affect you? Mm. And so that's not typically something you would receive if you were even receiving just a fine. And that particular person may go and vandalize again, not really understanding how it impacts others. Right. So the circle brings this other concept of impact. I cannot tell you how many times I've engaged with students um, on exams, because I use circles for exams too, whether okay. they do well or whether <laughs> they do not so well. And they have always said, you know what? I've let down this group. I just didn't study enough. I've never heard of that before I started <laughs> using circles. But you're so invested at that mm. point that you feel as though your grade is literally impacting the other person. And in fact, your learning is. So, you know, we're stronger together, that kind of concept. That's what circles, I think, elicits and brings out in people. As I think about the fact that it was rooted in a native practice, I wonder if part of why, and I, I just throwing this out there, our culture maybe lost some of the ability to do this, is we don't have as many face-to-face -face relationships anymore. Um, one of our previous guests on the podcast, Dwight Friesen, was talking about, especially since the invention of the automobile, we now, we live in one place, but we don't really know our neighbors all that often. We work in one spot, we go to church somewhere else, we eat somewhere else, and everything's disconnected. And then comes the internet, and, and now, yeah. now you can just yell at each other online without ever hearing what someone else truly thinks or what they're experiencing or what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something... I wonder, our world has lost that. And I wonder if these this circle is kind of picking up on something more integral to who we are as human beings, the need to be face-to-face -face with a real person, that it's not then just an object. Because how easily we can objectify someone with a label. They're the other. They're different. When you're sitting, you see a face. You get a name. You hear a story. Mm -hmm. No wonder that's going to transform us. And I think because we don't take the time to really recognize the damage it causes, mm. it actually seems pretty normal to us. So if I come in and I want to speak to my husband, ouch, I just shoot him a text because I'm upstairs. <laughs> and of course, I'm so far away, I can't even yell if, by example. Sure. Um, this seems like this is appropriate. 
But when you when I also take the time to come downstairs, even while he's watching hockey, which by the way I hate, <laughs> and I circle my arms around him and I speak to him directly, mm. it actually provides a different feeling. Yeah. Right? So it's almost just that human one-on-one connection. And when someone looks at you, I think directly, you know that you are the focus mm. of their attention. Whereas if I'm texting or even if I'm in my automobile, you know, I can't really tell who is your focus. I mean, you might have five or six other email conversations and different things going. So I definitely think that's a part of it. I also read just recently that this sort of concept is causing millennials and Gen Z to be the most oppressed group at this point. Hmm. And they were saying that's due to a lot of different things, but they're missing this human interaction piece. And so they've offered restorative circles for those individuals who are in counseling um, for this type of oppression or depression. Yeah. Yeah. And And there's formal ways to do it and informal, right? I mean, this is something that you can do with any, you need a, obviously a facilitator, someone mm-hmm. who can see it, but there's that, well, maybe you could even tell me if I'm wrong on that, but this is something we can even do informally. It's a way where even as families, we yeah. can probably come around a table and share honestly about where we are and, and listening seems to be underneath it all. Can you talk about the importance of listening a little bit or what, how you've seen that play out in your experiences? Well, I think if you are really going to have a truly restorative circle, and it, you know, as it escalates and it becomes a little bit more difficult, you want to do some pre-conferencing. So that is really where your facilitator comes in. They speak to all of the parties involved and they kind of create some parameters. And then you come together and make some, you know, kind of loose rules so that everyone feels comfortable. Because recall that everything within the circle is only going to be shared if all feel comfortable. Right. So it's that equal piece, and you are constantly working towards that. Um, and you're doing a lot of requests. Is this okay for me to share with the other people? Or would you prefer I not share it? Because the minute that they see that you've actually foregone whatever permissions, most people just stand up and walk right out. Mm. Because circles are voluntary. That's right. the other thing we haven't talked about. They're totally <laughs> voluntary. So with this listening, I would add one word to it. I would call it active listening. Mm. So active listening is this concept where I'm not just listening to respond, but I'm listening to process Yeah. and say, I really did not consider how this could affect your life in 10 years from now. So um, one example I can think of is where this young woman who was truly involved in a sex trade, and Uh she shared that story with our class. She was one of our students, and she encouraged us to actually go and find the case and the article um, because the young man who was um, in head of that, he actually wrote a book about it in prison and wanted to sell it to gain money. So we, here we are, we're in criminal law, wow. um, but she has this real life uh, challenge going yeah. on and she chose to share it with us. And I was so proud of the students that basically they took control. They start to ask her, how did she feel? What was it that she expected from um, the actual occurrence? 
Would she consider writing her own book if that book were published? Thank God it was not published. That's but good. you can't really, you know, ascertain how a person will feel if it were to be published. Or say, for example, someone else would tell the story. Yeah. Um, and so they began giving her suggestions that would empower her. And in turn, it made her even more willing to share the story of how it all started, how she was in it for years, how she ended up receiving her own charges. And this just doesn't happen in class. <laughs> right. So, you know, from that perspective, I think the fact that they actively listened and heard her mm. as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, she discussed a crime and going on to our next concept, we were able to take that. And I said, now, since you've shared it, can we actually discuss the statute and things like that? Because I got to bring my instruction back into it. Sure. But it was a way to make it very real. Yeah. Well, and that active listening seems to mean you're caring more about the other in that moment than yourself. Yeah. And I think the other, I think in all walks of life, as you said, even even with your husband, people can sense when you're in it just to get to your thing or when you're in it to truly hear. Yeah. And, and I wonder, I just feel like we're missing so much of that today, right? Like we just like to yell across the aisle at yeah. the other, you know what I mean? And when you look at it, it's like everyone has that story. Yes. And when we invite that story forward, I just think some beautiful things can happen. Well, and I think that's why restorative practices speaks to me because when I really figured out, like, it's not just the concept I like, it's not the next fad, but it really is the story of Jesus yeah. and coming and being this redeemer for something we totally do not and cannot earn. Mm. That made me say, wow, why wouldn't I do this in yeah. my life? Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm totally restorative in my language and my approach and my actions, but I think much more about things before I do it now. Yeah. And I think it's because of these concepts. Well, it's, well, it's always the first step of anything, right? Is that awareness? I, I, I thought about this earlier because, you know, in the first century when they would eat a meal, it was at, often at a triclinium, mm -hmm. which people then literally ate, you know, in a circle or in like a horseshoe. And I said, I wonder, I wonder if we were to compare restorative practices to Jesus eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. I said, I, I bet you the conversation would look kind of similar. Like, I wonder if Jesus was kind of facilitating Mm -hmm. active listening and the others to share their pain and to share the hurt and to listen well to that and then share maybe how one community member had hurt another or how community members were missing each other and all of a sudden they come around and I almost could see Jesus facilitating a life-giving discussion and everyone in the room recognizing that no matter what their status was what their position was what their thought was that they actually had one thing in common. They were humans. Yeah. And so I may not have the exact same anxieties or insecurities that you have, but I have them. Yeah. And I think that is what Jesus was trying to say. Like, recognize that we are one body, mm -hmm. many parts, but we operate together. And so I think that is the community piece of restorative uh, practices. I think that it doesn't get enough um, sort of press, if you will, because what happens is the stakeholders that we don't think about typically are the ones who are impacted the most. 
So the primary people may be the person who's wronged and the person doing the wrong. But what about the parents, the neighbors, others, maybe even uh, people who have therapists? So there are so many layers to things that when we don't allow ourselves to sit back and actually experience and actively listen, we miss all of that. And that is just super ground for building strong foundations and relationships back to the body. In communities all over, right? Yes. I mean, that's so I feel like the other part of this is bringing things out. Like we also, I, I know for me, you know, as part of my training, had to go through counseling and therapy and learning how much I had taught myself and, and been taught by my environment, by my culture, to just push the things down. Yeah. But they're going to come out. Right. Mm -hmm. But then they're going to come out in ways we don't expect in times we don't expect in ways we don't like. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a little bit of this is saying let's intentionally together bring this up and explore it together. Yeah. And I feel like there's life there. There is. And you have to get to the point where you're willing to do that because now recognize this is an uncomfortable place. Oh, yeah. Really, what we're saying is you're willing to lose control. How many people would agree to that? How many people would agree to being on the same level as their students? How many people would agree to be on the same level as their pastor? Or You know what I mean? Whatever the situation is, most people would say, no, I'm the authority figure in the room. And I'm not saying that things can't get accomplished that way. But I think that if you want to have a lasting effect, you can actually voice that opinion and still hear the other voices and still proceed. Absolutely. And I think because, yeah, that's the other part to me is I I think some could be like, well, if we just listen to everybody, then everything's going to go. And it's more Mm -hmm. like, no, that's not what it is. But there is something to always be learned from someone else. And if we say, no, I have all the answers, there's a a pride, a lack of humility there Mm -hmm. that's always going to cause damage, right? Like the only way we can truly, if we are going to be the leader or in any situation build a true community is if we can listen well. If we can say, I don't have all the answers, even if I don't fully agree with you and your position, I can understand where you're coming from. I can hear your story. Maybe there's something in there that'll shift something in me. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that's a scary spot to be in. But when it happens, I feel like the result Mm -hmm. is so worth it. You grow by leaps and bounds. And you talked about Um, You don't want to be to a place because a lot of educators say this. I need to maintain control in my classroom. (laughs) Mm. And I actually always explain to them that if you look at the statistics for people who practice restorative practices in the classroom, they are so much more in control that they don't need as many disciplinary actions and reactions. That's more control than you would ever dream of. And you save yourself a lot of stress. (laughs) So why wouldn't you try that concept? The other thing is that, remember, there's this agreement at the beginning Mm -hmm. of these are the parameters. These are the things I'm willing to discuss. These are the things that I'm willing to listen to and hear so that you're not listening to every voice. So I'll give you an example. If someone says... I want to sit down and meet with my murderer, the person who murdered my daughter, which they do all the time. Um, One thing that this woman said was that she will not entertain any excuses Mm. at all. Either he takes full credit for what he did, 
or she will get up and leave. And once he heard that, every time he went to give an excuse, he actually crafted his answer in a way that said, actually, when I decided Mm. or when I did or when I felt like there was no other choice or, you know, he didn't say, well, it was because of drugs because she didn't want to hear it. Right. So every voice isn't in the the room and then isn't in the conversation and you still retain control over that. Now, hopefully, at some point, it is our goal that you would want to hear more. Sure. But one woman said she only wanted to be involved in a restorative conference because she wanted to make sure that she could articulate what to say at Mm. the hearing when Mm. she said she was going to help deny all parole. So whatever your thing is, as long as everyone is aware of it, and we learn from that as well. Of course. Right? We're yeah. still learning. So I think that's the beauty of it. You're not trapped in someone else's world mm. or someone else's reality. Yeah. You are still having your voice heard. That's very important. So what that does lead me to one question that I wanted to ask was, um, what about when someone won't participate in that way? Like someone says, you know, I would like to have this conversation. And the person says, well, that's out. I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't possibly do that. What what normally? Because I mean, this has got this happens in relationships all the time, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, it happens in churches, it happens in marriages, it happens in classrooms, it happens with legal issues mm-hmm. where one side says, "No, I'm unwilling to to hear and and because that one guy had to humble himself yeah. to say, "I'm when I feel an excuse coming up, I'm going to reframe it." I mean, that took humility, but that but of course humility always leads to that restoration in life in general. But what about when someone says, "No, I, I won't do it." So I should go back and add that that was 15 years of him being being in prison. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of times when people think of restorative justice, they're thinking that someone gets off. No, mm, he right, was in right. prison for 15 oh, years. Oh, sure, right. And so he had had some things that he dealt with. He had had some anger management classes. Um, and he could see the pain he was yet causing yeah. while he was over here growing and healing. So I think that is what gave him. But he, I, I agree, he was very courageous sure. um, to approach that. But if a person says that they do not want to be a part of a circle, then you don't have the circle hmm. because it is restorative. Right. What you don't want to have ha- happen is two people sitting across from one another who are already in debt, invested in this battle and now they can strike one another. Right. That is not what restorative <laughs> practices is. But what happens is the facilitator then does a lot more work. Yeah. And so this this is just, you know, we're, we're kind of getting close to the end, but it's bringing up all kinds of thoughts for me. Um, the, the book of Philemon comes to mind, mm-hmm. of Philemon and Onesimus, mm-hmm. and how Paul was kind of the facilitator there. He did something really clever. He he related to both of them and then said, now through me, you're going to relate to one another and you're going to shake hands, right? And I mean, they worked it out. Um, but I, so it, it brings up a few things. One, that sometimes we may not get that reconciliation with the opposing side right away. Absolutely. It may process. not come. It's a process. Right? right. And second, it's wise to bring in, it, uh, it brings me back to the community idea. That as humans, we like to somehow keep it to ourselves. But with a facilitator, you're inviting someone else in 
that can work in there. Mm-hmm. So to me, brings it back to the communal part again. I mean, we're made in the image of the Trinity, right? Father, yes. Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this is like we relate together. So as you're speaking, I'm just seeing more and more the importance of that communal element and that facilitator and other people who can sometimes do the work almost behind the scenes yeah. to bring people together again. So if you think about, um, I had two students who I, you know, were thought very highly of. Uh, a male and a female and uh, the male was being accused of a sexual advance and so I have both students and I thought I think this is a misunderstanding but before we approach it I really need to find out so a part of my work was meeting with each one individually so when I say the facilitator is doing a lot of work this is pre-work before you ever get to the circle And as long as you have a relationship, they will reveal to you what's really happening and then show you the parameters. And then you can also say, well, would you consider hearing this directly? Sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no. But I think the point is that as a facilitator, you keep trying if they allow you to. Um, because humans really do desire to have reconciliation. Yeah. Even amongst all the anger, it just helps us heal and move to our next step. So even if it isn't harmony and unity reconciliation, it's some sort of um, definitive end or yeah, answer. Right. And so that, that reconciles for me that isn't a good relationship. Husband and wife, I, I think those are very interesting because when I really think about husband and wife and, and persons in relationships who are not willing to do this, typically you find them sloping slowly to a divorce, mm-hmm. really, if you think about it, because that's what marriage is all about. That's what Jesus always made his analogy on in the word, (laughs) right? Why use a marriage where we know there's nothing but compromise um, in a way in which we're happy to do it. Uh, It's a service. It's, It's more of being in ministry. And so if you're unwilling to do that, then really what you're saying is I consider myself higher than this other person. Uh, and that then goes contradictory to our vows right. and contradictory to the institution yeah. as it's been laid out yeah. for us. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, I'm hearing it's, that. It's, it's good. seriously problematic, right? And I think for me, every relationship is like that. Now, the difference is I can make a decision that this relationship isn't good for me. But if I've made the commitment that this marriage is for me, and it isn't morally or physically, like, you know, there's a caveat. There are some things that we have to protect ourselves from. Of course, of course. But in a way in which I just no longer want to compromise or see the other side, that becomes problematic. And we've all had situations where we say, today is just not the day I want to bend. And then you look over at your spouse and and you almost come immediately because we are Christians and you say, okay, you switch positions and now they're saying what you would say. And it's like, oh, that's right. So that's reconciliation. Like that was a total circle all at once. Right. Um, But it's that willingness. It's a heart issue that I'm willing. Well, I love that you said in there the part of when we say we're unwilling, we're saying we're higher than. 
And uh, in a second, I'm going to ask you maybe to give us two or three things for everyone to consider as they go forth. You know, at Rua Space, we're about making space for the spirit yeah. and about um, growing as who God made us to be. And obviously, we are ministers of reconciliation. That's what we're told by Paul is that's literally what we're doing. And so that's why I love this, because I believe there's implications for all relationships, all people. And that, that higher portion you mentioned, I just think when we recognize everything's a gift from God, that we're saved by grace, that even we have made deep mistakes, yet God offers us that mercy, how could we not hear the story of somebody else and be open to possibly recognizing how we were wrong? Um, but sort of to close, um, do you have a couple things you would sort of encourage people? Maybe what you've realized through your own journey or what the practice have taught to say, hey, as you go forth today in your relationships, you might find yourself in an argument with your spouse or a child or a coworker or a boss or a pastor or something later today. You might have been hurt or you might have hurt somebody. Yeah. What types of things would you say to someone to say, hey, consider this, maybe begin the journey in this way? I would always say when you're thinking of a challenge, like I like to call them challenges, um, where you feel like you were the harmed, I would always say consider a situation in which you did the harming and think about the sort of responsibility that placed on you and how it made you feel. And I think then you're able to come back and have a different approach. I'm not saying that we should just be placemats and people should walk all over us. I'm absolutely not saying that. But I think that you have to be very careful in when you say that you've been harmed, um, considering that you've never done harm, because that's against the word. But anyways, right, um, the next thing I would say is that never underestimate your words. Mm. Your words are powerful. Yeah. And um, my mom always says there are some words that you put out that you can never take back. And I think restorative practices and the restorative questions and restorative answers, by the way, um, they're out there where you say, what happened here instead of what did you do? Mm. I mean, yes. that, that's a simple distinction. But as soon as you say, what did you do? A person is placed in the sort of defensive mode. Yeah. But when you say what happened, yeah. that allows them to react and share. So never underestimate the power of your words. And finally, I think I would say never believe that you cannot learn from anyone. Yeah. Because I believe solutions that we are especially praying for and seeking out are found, found in some of the most weird places. <laughs> Right. We can learn from everyone. It may be from your dog, which I don't have. It may be from <laughs> your niece. It could be from a TV show. It could definitely be from the word of God. But there's always a way that we are being communicated to. But if we are used to saying, I don't want to, I'm not going to listen, that unactive listening, we could miss it. Yeah. So never... You know, just shut down an opportunity, especially those who harm you. I think there's huge lessons in that. 
Amen. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I love that. I, I, I think there's even more there. And I think that's an awesome um, sort of introduction of that and some ways people can go forward. What uh, Kind of two things then to close. Um, if people want to learn more about restorative practices, what sites or books might you recommend? And then where can they find you? I, I don't I don't know. You don't have Facebook, right? Okay. So I don't have so, anything. Oh, anything. Okay. Okay. Well, then. Yeah, Twitter or so, Twitter or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just old school. All right. Email. Email. Johnson underscore T-A-U-Y-A at hotmail.com. Noting that I am Taya Force, not Taya Johnson. I'm a married <laughs> woman. Um, I like to make sure everyone knows that. And if I were looking to really delve in this area of restorative practices, they have these little mini sections and um, camps that you can do. And most per, um professions actually provide money. They want to send people nice. to this. So uh, I would consider looking to my employer to foot the bill, but I would go to iirp.edu, iirp.edu, and that's the Institute um, on Restorative Practices. Um, they have both uh, credit-bearing and non-credit-bearing uh, conferences and courses, graduate courses. And then some books I would recommend. It's funny you would ask me that. I have a couple <laughs> We've here. got them here on the table. Restorative Circles in Schools and then the Restorative Practices Handbook, both um, by Ted Wackel, Wechtel. And Wechtel, right? Two of them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, these books are tiny mm. but powerful. And so if you just want to whet your appetite, I would start here. Now, there's many, many moons of information of um, out there. And as soon as you kind of tap into these, it'll reveal some more. Well, but, I will make sure to tag all those things in the show notes so people can just go there, click, and go. So thank you so much for coming on and having thank a conversation. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> what a blessing. Thanks. <laughs> Hey everyone, Phil here again. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Rua Space podcast as I interview Taya Forst. I hope that you found something challenging and encouraging as you make space for the spirit and grow into the person God created you to be. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Rua Space. We would love an Apple, iTunes podcast review if you enjoyed this episode. Those mean a lot to us and they help us reach more people with this good word. So brothers and sisters, until next time, grace and peace be with you.